or you should all have a, uh, a handout. Um, what, what we're doing in this Sunday school is we're continuing uh, thinking through evangelism. Uh, we're calling this series Ready. Um, three, three, three sessions on evangelism. And why Ready uh, sort of explained last week because we're, we're saying what we need to be is ready for the opportunities that the Lord gives us. But why, why think about evangelism in um, Sunday school? Well, a few reasons. Um, one is normally, we're not actually this morning in James, but normally we're going through James. Do you remember how James talk, tells us to be hearers of, sorry, doers of the word and not hearers uh, only? And that's really important. So he doesn't get rid of the word. He's not just, just do, don't listen, just do. He's no, be both, be hearers and doers. And often in these Sunday school times, we think we, we do lots of hearing of the word, which is really important. We need to be hearers. We need to get our doctrine right. We need to understand our Lord right so that we respond in faith. We respond in works. And uh, evangelism is one of the key things that the church is called to be involved in. And uh, then last week we had a quick brief think about why does evangelism matter? Well, it, it really does matter. We sort of all know it matters intuitively. But why does it matter? Well, it matters because of uh, our eternal destiny. Uh, do you remember how Jesus talks about on the Sermon on the Mount? How he says it's better uh, to go uh, to uh, heaven with one arm than to hell with two arms. It's more important than your arms. It's more important than your eyes. It, 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 there's nothing that's more important than your eternal destiny. Now, Jesus at that point isn't talking about evangelism, but he does make the point. Our eternal destiny matters more than anything else. Then we consider God's compassion. Again, we can see that all over the scriptures, but just two examples, Old and New, Old Testament. We see God, do you remember, um, in contrast to Jonah. Jonah's thinking, why should I go to the Ninevites? Why should I go to the Assyrians? They're awful people. And God says to him, should I not care about the Ninevites? You don't know their left hand from their right hand. God is compassionate. And then, of course, we see that compassion in the New Testament as well, don't we? The Lord Jesus Christ. He sees the crowds, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He doesn't see the crowds. So look at these good people. No, he sees they're harassed, they're helpless. And he has compassion on them. Then we thought about um, how evangelism matters for the glory of God. In one sense, that's the most important uh, reason for evangelism. It's God's glory. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 1? I think it's about verse 13 or 14. And it talks about, he starts speaking to the Ephesians says you too were chosen in God's eternal plan and then he talks about how they heard the gospel they were included in it so in hearing the gospel they were saved and all that was done for the praise of God's glory it wasn't even done for the for their well it was done for their benefit but at that point he's saying the highest reason we can think about eternal salvation and mission is for the glory of God and then someone spoke to me after service last week, and it was really helpfully. They said, one of the reasons I care about evangelism is I want people to know the Lord Jesus Christ now. I want them to, to love him now and experience him now. And that's absolutely spot on. So I've just added that as another reason. And there, there could be loads of more reasons. So last week we thought about how evangelism matters. But then we thought about how you, you are probably not an evangelist. You're probably not an evangelist. So... Um, uh, the word evangelist, as in, as an actual, not, not, not the idea of evangelism, but the, 
the uh, donating someone as an evangelist it only happens three times in the New Testament. Uh, we have it um, in. Uh, oh, what do we have it? Uh, it's not one. It's top ahead. I think Acts, Acts chapter twenty reflects back talks about Philip the evangelist. Remember Philip, who, who there's a revival in Gaza, about uh, chapter eight, and then evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch. We see in Ephesians four, don't we, how God talks about He's gifted the church apostles, prophets, pastor, teachers, and evangelists. Not everyone's an evangelist. Um, it's another place. To, oh yes, T- Timothy. He's called to do the work of an evangelist. He's not called to do the work of everybody. He's called to do the work of an evangelist. So you're probably not an evangelist, but then everyone must be ready to give an answer for their faith. In other words, everyone is involved of the work of spreading the good news. So again, we saw that in two places: Colossians four, um, where it talks about Christians answering as they live uh, good lives. So Colossians four, Christians answering. And then 1 Peter 3 talks about unbelievers asking. So there's answering and asking. Of course, answering and asking implies both questions and answers, doesn't it? Um, You can't answer without a question. Uh, When you're asked, you give an answer, don't you? And why are we adopting this approach to evangelism? Well, basically because it seems to be uh, the grain of the New Testament. The grain of the New Testament is not that everyone is evangelist. Everyone has to get up on their soapbox and preach we're trying to remove the guilt that you're not meant to have now we may well be guilty in not sharing our faith enough in which case we should feel that we should be convicted of that uh, we should repent we should ask God for mercy to change but we should be convicted of things we're meant to be convicted about we're not going to be convicted of things uh, that we could be convicted of things that we, we're not even meant to be convicted of and it's also trying to is approach trying to encourage us to get on with what we've been called by God to actually do so whether that is um, the work you're meant to be doing, whatever you're doing Monday uh, through to Saturday, um, whether that's um, you're working in your workplace, whether you're spending a lot of time parenting, uh, even your leisure time, it encourages us to do that in and of its own sake. It encourages us to love people in and of its own sake, not just manipulating relationships around to conversations, not just manipulating our work around to conversations. And then finally, it just helps all personality types. So I think very often think, well, I'm not an evangelist because I'm shy. So hold on a second, you're not an evangelist at all. It's okay. But everyone can be involved in work of evangelism because everyone lives amongst people. Everyone has relationships. And I, I guess you could think of some extreme example of someone who's totally isolatedly fine. But the vast majority of us live our lives amongst other people. So that, that's just a recap, really. With all that in mind, um, start off this morning by thinking about how Christians are called to live in the world. We're called to live in the world. Now, what I want you to do, just um, do this on your own and then maybe share it briefly. Write down the names of six local friends whom you'd love to share the gospel with. Okay, write down the name of six local sh- friends with whom you'd love to share the gospel. I'll give you, um, I'll give you two minutes to do that, okay? Um, go for it. Okay, let's, uh, let's gather back together. Um, see lots of empty sheets. Um, we'll come back to that shortly. Um, now listen, we've just got to just remember sort of biblical theology here. By what we mean by, by that is, is the, um, the pattern of the scriptures as, as it goes out. 
And, and very simply, the distinction between Old Testament and New Testament has much more uh, com- complex than this. But broadly speaking, in the Old Testament, Israel as a nation is meant to be a light to the Gentiles. M- meaning by this, that as people come to see Israel as a nation, how they live, they see what a great God that Israel has. So, again, in classically, the Queen of Sheba, she comes from sort of roughly, roughly Ethiopia. She comes up and says, what happy people uh, you have, Solomon. Um, what a great God you must have. So they see Israel as a nation live in a wonderful way. And she's just blown away and goes away thinking how, how great God is. Again, we can see that uh, transition in the New Testament. But I think, again, most helpfully, we see right at the start of the New Testament, Matthew uh, chapters 1 and 2, um, particularly seen when the Magi, they come from the east and they come in. Again, still this sort of Old Testament model, they come in uh, to praise Jesus the Messiah. But at the end, in Matthew chapter 28, we see Jesus give the great commission. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. People are meant to go out into the nations. So it's no longer the people come into Israel's sea, uh, but it's now the church go out into the world to uh, share the gospel. And it's worth just looking at a few verses to show this. I wasn't going to do this as an exercise, but I don't think we've got time. So, but just do, do grab your Bibles. So grab a Bible if you've got one. Um, get your phone out if you don't. Um, not get your phone out to go on Facebook. Get your phone out and your Bible out if you don't. And let's just, just see a few of these verses. Um, so firstly, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 5, verse 11 to 12. Actually, I want to go 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 to 12. Say so 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 to 12. Let me read this out. So Paul here is talking about an instant of church discipline uh, where there's some abhorrent uh, sexual immorality happening within the church. So people who are coming to church are uh, doing things they shouldn't be doing. And and he basically says to the Corinthian church that you need to deal with this. You need to deal with this. But then he goes on. He says, I wrote you in my letter uh, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed, or is an idolater, a viler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with ju- for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So he's making this point, you shouldn't associate with immoral people. But he says, hold on a second, I, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm talking about a specific group of people here. I'm talking about basically people who are religious hypocrites. People who have the name Christian, they're saying I'm a believer, but they're not at all living like it. I don't mean they're just an immature believer, but they're consistently living in a way that is contradicting who they say they are. He says, don't associate with those people, because they need to know that they're not believers, but then he goes, on, no, I'm not saying you shouldn't associate with unbelievers. Absolutely. Life in this world means that you will associate with unbelievers. Now, that wouldn't have been true in Old Testament Israel because, well, I guess it would have been true because even in Israel, they're unbelievers. But they were, they were bearing the name of believers at least. But now in the uh, New Covenant, we're to be living in the world uh, and we will be living amongst unbelievers. Now, it doesn't answer every question about what does it look like to live amongst unbelievers. Uh, but there is that principle at place. Um, 
we could go on to see that in, well, yeah, let's, let's look at, um, if you just turn over to 1 Corinthians uh, 10, verse 27. Um, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 10, verse 27. Uh, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, again, the wider topic here now is not church discipline. It is to what extent should Christians be willing to eat food that has been sacrificed to idols? That's, that's the background issue here. And there's a bit of a sort of, new, Paul gives quite a nuanced answer uh, to that. But, but one of the applications he gives that, he says, look, it is fine to go out for a dinner party with unbelievers. That is, that, is, that, is, that is fine. That is a good thing to do. So go to a dinner party, go to your work do. These are fine things to do. You're free to do them. And in fact, the chapter before, 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul says, I became all things to all people so that I might win some of them. He spent his life hugely with unbelievers and he lived like unbelievers in many ways in order that he might live, win them to Christ. Then, again, a few verses off this one, he says, imitate me. 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me. And in other words, it's not a uniquely apostolic thing. Uh, let's go on to the next verse. Just turn with me to Luke 7, verse 34. <clears throat> Luke 7, verse 34. Um, Jesus speaking now. He says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, again, there, Jesus has been contrasted with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, again, in many ways, seen as like sort of the last of the great old covenant prophets. But Jesus brings something new. And he's saying, look, you, you are saying that I'm a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, certainly he wasn't a drunkard. We know he wasn't a drunkard because we know uh, getting drunk is a sin and Jesus was perfect. But why did they say that about him? Because he spent so much of his time, so much of his social time, with those who were notorious uh, in society. He was known as the friend of sinners because he socialised with bad company because he came to rescue them. And then finally, um, um, maybe don't turn this one up just for sake of time, but Acts 19, verse 30 to 31, the Apostle Paul, there's a riot going on in Ephesus and he wants to speak to the crowd. Um, but, but it's very, very dangerous. This is a total, total... It's total bedlam, very, very dangerous. And this is what Luke writes in Acts. He says, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, that means the, the rulers, um, the, 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 the unbelieving rulers, who were, his, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. So the great evangelist Paul had unbelieving friends who, who clearly really cared about him. Friends who are unbelievers. He must have been spending time with them. So, do you see this picture that's being painted um, in the New Testament? Is that believers are to live in the world. Now, um, we're going to move on here to say something that's not contradictory to this at all, but needs to be held entirely together. So, the second point is this Christians are to live differently from the world. And I guess we know this. This, this, I think naturally we'd sort of, we'd instinctively uh, go to this one first. Um, but again, turn up these verses. I think it's really, really helpful to see these verses. So how, in other words, how are we to live 
in the world. We're to live in the world by living distinctly or differently from the world. So let's go to 1 Peter 2, uh, 9 to 12. This is what Peter says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Brothers, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, very, very uh, famous verses. What, Paul's do, uh, what Peter, beg your pardon, is doing in those first two verses I read out, 9 and 10, he's basically using almost identical language for how God's people were described uh, in the Old Testament, specifically when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt. Uh, they were the titles that they were given, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And Peter saying, that is now you. Believers, that is you. Um, he says, you're holy, you're distinct, you're different from the world. Why? Because you're a royal priesthood. You're to make Christ known. You're to proclaim his excellencies. That was one of the jobs of the priest, was to proclaim the excellencies of God to his people. Um, and how do they do that? They're to live honourably. That's verse 12. Live honourably amongst the Gentiles. Uh, NIV says, live such good lives among the Gentiles. So that what? So that Gentiles see your good deeds and praise Jesus when he returns. In other words, for their conversion. It's like their living validates their message. It was put helpfully like this in something I read. It said, for the apostles, uh, very often the thing that validate them was their signs and wonders. So again, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the signs of the apostles being signs and wonders. Their signs and wonders validated that they were messengers from God. But for ordinary believers like you and I, it's a different validation. The validation that we're from God is the quality of our lives, the distinctiveness of our lives, how we live differently. And Peter does this a lot in his letter. So look, 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 at, look just on a few verses to 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2. Now Peter's talking about specific situation. Um, about unbelieving wives. This is what he says to them, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So they're one without words. Now, it's, again, it's assumed here they've already heard words. So it's not saying don't speak to your husbands about the gospel. It's assuming you already have uh, let known the gospel to your husband. He knows what the gospel is. He's not believed it. But he knows what it is. But now he sees your life. Now he is persuaded uh, by uh, the truth of it. The living validates the message. Again, 1 Peter 3, verse 10 to 15. Um, again, the, the, the famous verse is um, verse 15, uh, where he says, Always be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, be ready to make a defence when you're asked. Be ready, but... Why will people ask? Well, just before that, uh, in, in 1 Peter 3, verse, uh, maybe from verse 10, uh, this is what he says. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speak, speaking deceit. 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. In other words, here it's slightly the other way around. The living demands a message. They've seen your good life and they're going to therefore ask. Can you see? It's because unbelievers see the quality of your life. They see how you live. They'll ask the question. Uh, Titus 2, 9 to 10. Bond servants, talking about sort of bond servants or slaves, are to be submissive to their own master in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Do you see what they're meant to do? Um, the living validates the message. It makes it attractive. Again, Colossians 4, verse 5 to 6. We looked at this verse quite, quite a lot last week. Again, um, Paul says here that you may know how to answer each person. Well, why? Because, verse 5, you've walked in wisdom before that. So you see what's going on. Christians aren't commanded to live amongst unbelievers. We're not commanded to live amongst unbelievers. It's assumed that Christians do live amongst unbelievers. That is a biblical theology. That is uh, what Christians are going to be doing until the last days, living amongst unbelievers. Now, we can talk about what does that specifically mean. It's not particularly fleshed out. But generally speaking, it's assumed that Christians will live amongst unbelievers. Um, and, and holding these two points together, it strikes me that naturally we will fall into one error or the other more easily. But it's on a sheet. Error one, we'll live distinct lives, but we'll have a tendency to live in a Christian bubble or a Christian ghetto with no unbelievers ever seeing how we're living because we've really just um, pulled the drawbridge up and we just don't want to be contaminated by any unbelievers. That's error one. Error two is we have loads of unbelieving friends. In fact, we've got way more unbelieving friends than we have believing friends. But we don't live a distinct life at all. Um, now, what I do is brief discussion. Um, which error do you think you are more likely to fall into? A second question, why is it a false dichotomy? I mean, it's not that we have to be one or the other. So why is it a false dichotomy or a false choice? And then thirdly, what opportunities do you have, could you create, to live amongst unbelievers? Give you a, maybe three or four minutes just to chat about that amongst your tables. So uh, which area do you think you're most likely to fall into? I guess we need to know ourselves, don't we? Um, but we just want to make sure we're not sort of going from one end of the spectrum to the other and then back and forth again. This will require wisdom. I mean, if, for instance, we know that... Um, I think for me, certainly when I was a new Christian, um, my friends at university, just, they just love going out and drinking huge amounts of alcohol. That's just what they love to do. And that was a culture I was part of. And therefore, it did mean, hold on a second, uh, I, I need real wisdom here. Maybe the right thing actually won't be to step into the pub at all. Maybe that is the right thing to do. It requires wisdom. And, and you know, if, if you're trying to wrestle that through, then talk about it um, with an elder. Talk about it with people in your community group. Um, it does require wisdom. But ultimately, it is a false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. It's not saying we spend all our time with unbelievers by any means at all. But it's a false dichotomy. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ... Uh, didn't fall into either, did he? He had plenty of unbelieving uh, friends. He was the friend of sinners. Yet at the same time, he always lived perfectly, didn't he? Now again, of course, you read the New Testament, he, the vast majority of time we, we, we see him spending is with his Christian friends, isn't it? So it's not saying don't spend time with your Christian friends at all. It's, it's have loads of fellowship, be encouraged, spend lots of time meeting together, do all those things, um, but let's not neglect living amongst our unbelieving friends as well. 
And then what opportunities do you have, could you create to live amongst unbelievers? That's, that's one maybe to think through if you're finding that actually, realistically speaking, I'm just not doing that at all. I have put the drawbridge right up. Well, let's think about it a little bit more finally. Uh, two opportunities for distinctive Christian living. Uh, in one sense, these are picked uh, fairly at random, but I do, think, um, I, guess, I do think they can be very, very effective. One is a generous hospitality. So hospitality, um, according to the World Health Organization, which I'm actually very skeptical of, broadly speaking, but um, according to the World Health Organization, uh, there is a loneliness epidemic uh, in the world. And apparently, uh, for some people, it's as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I don't know if you've heard that. I, I don't know how that could be the case, but uh, apparently that is the case. Uh, apparently, the loneliness that a lot of people are experiencing now that that hasn't been experienced uh, sometime previously uh, has in some instances increased the likelihood of dementia uh, by up to 50% and of course all this stuff got exacerbated um, after Covid didn't it we've become more and more used to just living uh, in our own castles but hospitality is part of the ordinary Christian life I've put on a load of verses here I'm not going to look them up but I think what's interesting is how um, in 1 Timothy 3 in Titus 1 Um, These are the marks of what an elder should be. And when Paul is describing what an elder should be, Timothy and Titus, broadly speaking, he's not saying how an elder should be so different from everyone else. He's saying how an elder should be an an example Christian uh, to everyone else. And hospitality, in other words, a basic part of uh, being a Christian. What does hospitality mean? It's not quite hard to work that out. Essentially, it means receiving strangers. That's what it means. So it could be strangers who just don't live in your home. You, you, you're a nuclear family, so a stranger is someone who's not part of your nuclear family. But it can also mean people who aren't part of um, the family of God coming in and uh, sharing. Now, it will be costly. It will be costly to have hospitality. It will cost you time, cost you money. Uh, things will get broken. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, who founded our denomination, uh, he, he, although he was a minister, he was also a keen evangelist, and he set up this um, organisation called Labrie, and where he basically invite people into his home uh, and just share his life with them and discuss things with them. And I, I, can't, I couldn't find the quote anyway, but it's something like after a couple of years, all his wedding presents had been broken. And uh, people are normally very precious about their wedding presents. I certainly am. All of his were broken within uh, two years because he just shared his whole life. It was costly to him, uh, but he did it. Uh, why does it have such tremendous benefits? Well, it... It shows difference, doesn't it? If you really want to see what someone's life, well, go into their home. If you want someone to see your life, invite them uh, into your home. Um, It shows vulnerability, doesn't it? You you can put a facade on if you just meet someone for 10 minutes. But if you invite someone to your home, you can't um, hide uh, really what's going on in your home. It shows love. It shows generosity. You're living out the gospel. Uh, People can see your whole life, how you spend your money. How you look after children, how you speak to children, what's important to you. And when people share uh, hospitality together, they'll, they'll, unbelievers will start to see, not just meet an individual Christian, they'll start to meet Christians as a group. I think when you meet an individual Christian and all their eccentricities, you can say, oh, that person is an eccentric. But when you meet a group of people and they're all acting in the same way that you think so, you say, well, it's not just their personalities. There is something deeper to this in which there is. Of course, and it's the, um, the gospel at work in us. Well, what stops hospitality? Well, I think one of the big things is pride, isn't it? So pride can work two ways. We don't invite people over um, who don't offering, offer anything to us. We, 
we sort of why would I have this person over they don't bring anything I don't particularly enjoy their company they can't bring around any nice food I'm not going to invite them over that's pride and they're not good enough for me and it stops us uh, being hospitable to all sorts of people but pride can work both ways as well can't it so we stop inviting people over who we think are maybe above us in society we're fearful that our hospitality won't be good enough for them so we do it very very rarely we only have people over occasionally when we get the house perfectly tidy when we saved enough money up for the perfect feed but again that doesn't help anyone does it because it's not showing what ordinary life is at the end of the day um, lonely people uh, don't need the best food they don't need the tidiest house they just need to be loved and they need to be listened to they need to have life shared with so pride can really get in the way of that, of course, the antidote that's the gospel, isn't it? When we believe the gospel, we know how much we've been loved and how undeserving we are. It enables us to love uh, others too. Here's a second uh, thing I think we can do. Uh, an easy way of being distinct is distinctive speech. So again, at Colossians 4, that verse, um, we've looked at a few times. It's not just what we say, it's the way we say it as well. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about our conversation being seasoned with salt, and full of grace. So the idea of salt, the salt isn't the meal, it's the flavour of the meal, isn't it? And again, I think Apostle Paul's talking here, he says, not, don't just think about what you're saying, about the, think about the way you're saying it. Is your conversation seasoned with salt? Is the fruit of your spirit uh, in your conversation? Again, 1 Peter, we made that connection earlier. Uh, the way we speak, you know, whoever loves life or would long to see a long days, um, must speak in the right way. And it's from our speech that questions get answered. We've seen that in James, haven't we? I don't know about you, James, last week about how we speak and no human being can tame the tongue. I've just had, I've lived out that sermon in a negative way this week. I've just been so uh, convicted of how my speaking is not what it should be. Um, But of course, for the Christian, we have great resources to deal with our tongue, don't we? We can come to our Father in heaven who will transform us. And actually, as a Christian community in general, Our speech should be and can be uh, distinctive uh, by the grace of God. And so often Christians, we are labelling the media, aren't we, as being bigoted and hateful. But I wonder how many people who call Christians bigoted and hateful have actually spent time in Christians' homes. Was that what they hear from afar? But actually when they meet Christians, I think that mud doesn't stick as well. Okay, um, Final thing I want us to discuss, really, I want us to put this into practice, okay? Think about how we became Christians and how have we seen this at work in ourselves. So uh, two questions to close with. Uh, Which person had the biggest influence on your becoming a Christian? How are they influential? And which Christian did you live alongside? Now, for a lot of us, uh, that answer will be our parents. And that's that's a good answer. Um, but what did, what did they do? How did they live in a way that authenticated the gospel? Um, but which other Christians were they as well? Um, and particularly, uh, if there weren't other Christians, is there anything that you... If, they weren't, sorry, if this other Christian wasn't a parent, is there anything that you could imitate? So let me just tell you about uh, my, my answer to this question. So the biggest people who influenced me to become a Christian were my parents. I didn't become a Christian until I left home. I had a good Christian friend who spent time with me, played football with me. Um, but he also invited me along to church and as I went with him it was a long bus journey about 40 minutes there 40 minutes back and I used to ask him questions because I could see it was the real deal now he can answer all my questions but this is how he used to answer uh, number one if it was an easy question he gave me the answer 
it was a hard question. He said, look, I don't know the answer to a question, but he took me seriously. He said, let me find out the answer and I'll let you know. Or sometimes he would say, look, I don't know the answer to that question, but let me tell you why the answer to that question, whatever it is, is not a barrier for me to becoming a Christian. So, for example, if I said, you know, how does Christianity explain the big ban or something? Or something? He might say something like this. I can't remember what the specific questions were. He might say something like this. He said, look, then I, 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 I'm, I'm not a scientist. Um, and there are some scientific questions I know that people have said disprove God. But actually, ultimately, I know that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. I know that scripture is trustworthy. So I want to find out the answer to those questions. But that's not a barrier for me to become a Christian yet, because ultimately I trust in the resurrection of Jesus. So why don't in this uh, last section, just, just chat about those two questions uh, amongst yourselves to encourage each other and think what you could learn and put into practice yourself. Go for it. Okay, everyone, let's, um, we, we've been prompted by the kids, so uh, I'm going to close in prayer and then we'll, um, and then we'll go. Um, if we could leave, I think, just whoever's on Sunday Switch Mind, I think we want two tables worth of chairs in here, is that right? So this table here and this table here. In fact, no, let's do this table here and this table here. If we leave these two chairs here... And then everything, every, all the other chairs we take through, that would be really helpful. And if you could start by seating at the far side. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us in this area. We pray that we would live amongst unbelievers in a way that is loving and distinctive. Convict us for where uh, we've just not cared about unbelievers and so we don't want to spend time with them. Convict us where we've cared little about you and we've not wanted to be holy uh, in our relationships with unbelievers. Father, we pray that we would make the most of every opportunity you'd give us. Help us to be deliberate in seeking out these opportunities. And we ask this for your glory. Amen.